0: Well, I don't know if you've noticed yet, but we're in the thick of presidential campaigns and primaries and caucuses and caucusing. I didn't know it was a verb until this year. It's a caucus. These things take place every four years in our country, but this one has been a doozy. You may be entertained by it all. Some are excited right now. You might be exhausted by now. You might be terrified. But no one can doubt the unusual drama and tension and heat of this presidential election. And one interesting thread of discussion in this election, well, I suppose it's actually something that's discussed in every election, but it seems to be more so in this one, is about the authenticity of political identity. In other words, whether a candidate is the real deal, so to speak. So some have pointed out that Bernie Sanders has been a Democrat for not very long at all. In fact, he's actually sitting in the Senate as an independent. He's certainly further left than almost any Democratic candidate in the past. But who can doubt the fact that he is currently registered as a Democrat and is running as a Democrat? Some have pointed out that Donald Trump hasn't always been a Republican. And he's different in personality and in some of his positions than many of his Republican predecessors. But who can doubt that he's actually right now registered as a Republican, and is a Republican candidate. A squishier debate has been whether a candidate is a true Republican, or a true Republican, a a true Democrat, rather. Even squishier still is whether one is truly conservative or truly liberal. Who gets to say what a conservative is, much less a true conservative? I know we all have our opinions about these things, we all have our litmus tests that we would like to apply to these labels, but one thing is certain, we don't all agree on what litmus tests and where the lines should be drawn. Now before you think I've lost my marbles and decided to start using this pulpit for political stumping... Uh, Let me assure you that this is simply an illustration for something in the Bible. Something, I think, far more important. What is a Christian? And how do you know? And who says, are you? Is identifying as a Christian simply like registering for a political party? Or is it even more loose than that? It's just verbal identification. The world has sometimes been shocked that Christians have said that that person who says they're a Christian actually isn't a Christian. It's been this categorical confusion for them. Being a Christian for some in the world is simply saying that you're a Christian. It's simply the box you would check if you were filling out a survey that covered something about your religion. Maybe it's simply that A couple times a year, when you do go to church, you go to a Christian church and not a Mormon church. You were raised in that heritage and not another. Maybe even for social reasons, you would prefer to still identify as a Christian rather than face the stigma that you might have if you were calling yourself an agnostic or an atheist. So what is a Christian? Are you a Christian? And how do you know and how do you know it's real? Well, the book of James has been helping us think through some of these matters about true faith, about what true Christianity is and, and what it does and what it looks like. James writes with a concern that some wander away from the faith that they have once confessed. and In the long run, they prove that it was never real if they continue to wander That's how the book of James ends. It ends with this concern and this appeal. Some are going to wander. And when you see that, go after them. Keep them from wandering. In chapter 1, three times, James warns about being deceived. In our English Bibles, three times. Verse 16, verse 22, and verse 26. Open your Bible to James 1, if you would, if you don't already have it open. Look down and see. In our English Bibles, deceived. It's there, warned of, three times. Well, this week we come to the last two verses of chapter 1. And one of those warnings of deception is in our passage today. We'll look at verse 26 and 27, but I'd like to begin reading in verse 16, because before we get to our two verses at the end of this chapter, I want to take a few minutes to talk about how this section fits together, beyond just that thrice-repeated concern that we not be deceived. So this will overlap with what Sarah read for us earlier in the service, but let's see this. First mention of being deceived in verse 16. It's like that word wander at the end of the book. We're deceived and so we wander. Those wandering have been deceived. James says in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Well, already we can begin to answer some of the questions that our political illustration posed. Apparently, it is possible to say that you're a Christian and not be. Christianity is not simply verbal affirmation or identity. It's not either just about doing, but it works itself out in doing, in actions. And God decides what Christianity is. And so God Decides whether you're a Christian or not. In the end, it doesn't matter what mom and dad think. In the end, it doesn't matter whether you think you're a Christian. In the end, it will only matter whether God thinks this thing is real. Do not be deceived. How do you know what God thinks? How do you know that your faith is real? Real. Well, it seems to me in these verses we just read, especially verse 18 to verse 25, that James would have us apply a litmus test like this, asking, what is my relationship to and my response to the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible? What is my relationship to it? What's my response to it? I think these verses are all about the word of God. Just look down in your Bibles and glance over those verses we read, starting in verse 18. And I'll suggest some more specific questions that we can ask ourselves about our relationship to, and our response to the Word. Like for, from verse 18, we might ask, Have I been born of the Word? Because He has brought us forth by the Word of truth, James says. Have I been born? Has He brought me forth like this? In verse 19, we could ask, am I quick to hear? Am I listening to God? In verse 21, we should ask, are you actively receiving the word? Ongoingly receiving and receiving it with meekness. In that same verse, we could ask, is this word implanted within us? Is it being implanted and has it been implanted? Because we need that if it's going to save our souls, like James says. In verse 23, we could ask Are we looking into the Word and looking intently into it? And as you look intently into the Word, are you seeing yourself in the Word of God? Do you know how that works? Sometimes we begin to look at the Bible. Thinking we have it under a magnifying glass. And then we realize that we are under its magnifying glass. It's showing ourselves, us, at a level we didn't formally see and at first may not like to see. But once we see it, verse 24, are we going to change anything about it? Or are we just going to walk away? We saw it, that was uncomfortable well, what sports can we find on TV this afternoon that will distract us from this? Now, this week, we come to, as I said, the last two verses of this chapter, and I think James takes all of that and gets even more practical, and it's as if he would have us ask, is the Word of God working itself out in very practical and concrete ways, like in your speech? like in your care for the needy and in holiness or purity. If it's being worked out like that in these practical and concrete ways, then that's true religion. Religion. Religion? That's a complicated word. You might be surprised that it's here in the Bible. Then again, some of you might be assuming that it's, Everywhere in the Bible, and it's always positive in the Bible. Well, the words religion and religious are only found a few times in the Bible. Let's talk about what religion is and is not before we move any further. What religion is and is not. Sometimes in the Bible, it has negative connotations, it's a negative thing. Sometimes in the Bible, it's neutral. It's just one's beliefs and practices related to God. But in James, apparently, it can be negative and positive. You see, at the end of verse 26, it's negative. This person's religion is worthless. He thinks he's religious. And in verse 27, it's positive. Religion that's pure and undefiled. This is very important for us because today, many pious, well-meaning Christians speak of religion only negatively. You'll hear Christians say, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. A few years back, a YouTube video went viral. It was called, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. I just checked this week. It now has over 30 million views and 150,000 comments on it. This video suggests quite strongly, Jesus hates religion. The kind of religion the video is talking about is that of empty practices or even hypocrisy. And that part is true. Jesus hates hypocrisy. Read the gospel accounts and you'll see he had his harshest words for those who were thoughtless and unheartfelt in their religious practices. And so we should, as Christians, follow Jesus in this. We should insist that Christianity is inherently different than world religions, the other religions. Tim Keller points this out so frequently in his preaching and his excellent books. He he often contrasts what religion demands of you and what the gospel demands of you. And if we understand that Tim Keller, when he says religion in that context, is talking about earning God's favor versus receiving God's favor, that's the gospel, then it's fine. But we should all be careful to leave room for James 1:27, where religion is a positive thing. In fact, it can be pure and undefiled before God. Yes, of course, some think that they're religious, but really, they've deceived themselves and that religion is worthless. But there is a religion that is true and pure and undefiled before God. And that religion is indeed a relationship. And not just a relationship either. It has actions. It has responsibilities. It reflects God. A lot of things can be said about this true religion. What it is and what it's not. You could almost say, to, summarize, or to, to fully define true religion, you need to use the whole Bible. We don't have time for that this morning. In earlier verses, James has, in essence, been telling us where true faith and true religion comes from. It comes from God. It comes from the new birth. And then James has been telling us how religion perseveres. True religion receives the Word. It it implants the Word. We're changed by the Word. We act upon the Word. And now in our verses this morning... Even at the risk of oversimplification, James gives us three tests, three things that true religion looks like. And he doesn't say everything that could be said about true religion or all the things that could serve as litmus tests for true religion. He doesn't say anything about prayer and Christians should pray. He doesn't say anything about church. But that's one of the ways you should be assured of your faith when you are around other sinners for a number of years and still love each other. He doesn't say anything about worship, but Christians, oh, they worship. They worship. He gives instead three tests for true religion that, though it's limited in its scope, they are legitimate, and in fact, they're piercing, they're convicting, they're telling and they spring from the very heart of God. We must make clear up front, brothers and sisters, that these three proofs of true religion are not merely to-dos. They're not merely tasks. It's not like if you do these, you will eventually have true religion before God. These are not pathways to true religion, but these are products of true religion. Not pathways to true religion, but products of true religion. And the difference between those is eternally significant. That's important for us because Christianity is not merely an ethic. Not merely morals. Not merely charity, which is what verse 26 and 27 cover. And that's why I took the time that I did to walk us through the verses that come before verse 26 so we would have it firmly in mind that verse 26 and 27 are not floating down from heaven by themselves in a capsule for us to to then live by, but they come in a package that James has written up for us. And all that stuff that came before is what flows in to what, true religion looks like so what is religion well it's simply the umbrella word for how we relate to god and how that's to be lived out that's what religion is you can do that badly or you can do that well it can be worthless or it can be true so now finally we're to the sermon proper (laughs) And all God's people said amen, right? (laughs) Hurry up, Ryan. All right, what true religion looks like. That's what we've already talked about, what religion is and isn't on a cultural level. Now, let's, according to the Bible, talk about what true religion looks like. It looks like these three things. One is stated negatively in verse 26. The other two are stated positively. The first one is control of the tongue control of the tongue if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart this person's religion is worthless do you get that vivid picture of a bridled tongue we bridle horses we put bits in their mouths and then attach to those reins that you can pull on and direct I know some of you Love horses. I'm sure some of us, I think I would count myself in this group, are pretty terrified of horses and don't plan on getting on one for the rest of my life. (laughs) Right? And I bet some in this room have had worse experiences than I have of getting kicked off or a horse deciding out of the blue as it got spooked to to just sprint off. And uh, if you don't know what you're doing, that is scary as heck. Horses are, well, they're big, they're fast, they're, they're unpredictable. Notice that when James went looking for an illustration about what the tongue is like and how you control the tongue, he, did, he didn't say, it's like corralling a bunch of puppies. <laughs> that can be difficult, but it's not dangerous. He didn't think of cows and how they need herding and how you need fences and then once they're in fences, then they're safe. No, he, he thought of that 1,500-pound wild beast that can be tamed, but not easily. His analogy is purposeful, and it's really quite powerful. Our tongues are little. They're not 1,500 pounds, thankfully. But they do as much damage or more than any horse ever did. If they're not bridled, they'll wreak havoc. James is going to return to this idea of the tongue, and this is one of his illustrations for the tongue, that it needs bridling like a horse. You can read ahead to see his longer version about the tongue in chapter 3, verses 1 and following. But here at the end, it's just a few short words. Painting the picture of the difficulty of bridling our tongues and the necessity of bridling our tongues because our words can either demonstrate genuine faith in true religion or they will betray a worthless religion and a deceived heart. Words are powerful in their effect. Proverbs says they have life and death in them but they're also telling in their source. Words don't come from mouths. Words come from hearts. And so words reflect hearts. Perhaps James understood this from the teaching of his older brother Jesus. In Matthew 12, Jesus taught, "...the tree is known by its fruit, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks." The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now elsewhere in scripture we are told the various kinds of ways our speech can be sinful... Jesus and James assume that we know those and just talk about speech that's bad or wrong or evil. But let's think through some of these categories. What are we talking about? It's not just angry speech, so that's one of the categories, but also gossip, slander, bitterness, manipulation in our relationships, lying, lying bragging, self-promotion. There's a a list in Ephesians 5 that goes like this. Filthy words, foolish talk, and crude joking. We might aptly uh, apply the proverbial wisdom to, to some forms of malicious sarcasm that at least my generation on down has gotten really good at. Mocking. We we sometimes, with our friends, go too far. There's malicious sarcasm there. You can probably think of other categories than these, but think of the different categories. Be sure you're not thinking of all the ones except the one you're struggling with the most. These things are not just uncouth. These things are not just on God's naughty list, so we better try to improve. Our words can condemn us. Our words may expose a heart that has not been born again, born from above, born of God and of his word. None of us in this room are batting a thousand with our words. No matter how long you've been a Christian, your lips still get you in trouble. And God doesn't tell us where the line is between true faith is here and, and worthless religions down here. Here's the line. It's these many bad words or no, we, we don't have that. We need to examine ourselves. We need to ask what's going on at the heart level. We need to ask what flows out of us most easily and comfortably. And whether we're actually bridling are you bridling? Are you bridling? Some of us simply talk too much. A bridal tongue in part relates to just plain old self-control. And Proverbs 10 tells us that when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Bridling isn't just taming. It's also directing. That's the analogy of the horse, right? The the bridle, the bit in the horse's mouth, helps him from not going where he's not supposed to go, but also directing him where he is supposed to go. And words are like that too. James doesn't just want us to be more quiet. Maybe Proverbs infers that. James maybe infers it a bit, but he's certainly not calling us to vows of silence. Our tongues are to go a certain way. They're to be instruments of blessing and praise and encouragement. Proverbs 10 says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life or in that classic passage on our speech, one we should all have memorized, one that includes both the negative and the positive about our speech. It's Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may, may give grace to those who hear. So just as we listed... The many ways that speech can be done wickedly, we should all on our own, maybe over lunch today, think of ways in which our speech can be channeled in God's ways and used for his good and glory in this world. For praise and for prayer and for loving others, for affirming them, on and on. Make your own list up. But true religion is not about cleaning up a potty mouth. It's got to go deeper than that. True religion is about being changed by God at a deep level from the inside out. He's changing hearts and thereby he's changing speech. And forgiven Christians still fight temptation and sin and they fail and so there's ongoing need for bridling. But true Christians do indeed want their tongue to be made back into what it was originally made to do to sing God's praises, to declare his glory, to love others, not to speak evil or falsehood or to do harm. Now if you say this morning, that's it. I'm hopelessly condemned. This test need not go any further. I know my tongue. I know my words. Therefore, I've seen my heart today, and it is dark. What hope is there for me? Well, friend, I would say that you are now in a better position than when you came through those doors this morning, because it is better to know your guilt than it is to be guilty and deceived. I bet many in this room came in this morning deceived. It's good to know your guilt. It's good to see your sin. And now you must humbly and boldly bring your guilt and sin to God who alone can do something about it. Hear what James says in chapter 4. Hear this as directions for you if you're the one I'm talking about who knows that you're in trouble And your mouth proves it. If you're seeing your sin and wanting to bring it to him, here, James 4, verse 6, that he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. we got to go low before we'll ever be raised up. James calls us to get low before God to be honest about our sin and how bad it is. And only then will there be cleansing. How? Well, because Jesus was righteous for us. Jesus came and he died for sins upon the cross. He bore our shame, he bore our guilt, And he offers that payment and offers his righteousness to all who will come to him humbly and believing and trusting and clinging to him in this sort of bold, humble faith that James describes here. That's control of the tongue. Secondly, there's the test of care for the needy, verse 27. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now before we dig too far into this verse, let me point out something that is subtle and profound right there in the first half of it. Religion that is pure and undefiled. Pure and undefiled. Those are terms borrowed from The old covenant sacrificial system, those sacrifices of old had to be undefiled. And the priests who made those sacrifices before they entered into that room for sacrifices, they they had to be pure, ritually pure. The old covenant wasn't only about sacrifices and purity like this, but it was there. It was certainly part of what had to be done before God. But in the new covenant, all that changed. You'd imagine that the old covenant may, at a time, say, religion is pure and undefiled, sure, faith-filled, but undefiled, pure sacrifices before the Lord. But in the new covenant, that's all changed because Jesus, the high priest, he came, and Hebrews seven tells us he's holy, innocent, unstained, same word, Separate from sinners. And he made a perfect, once for all, sacrifice of his self, his own body, which purifies us perfectly and for good. And now, for all those who have that as theirs, then, well, they... They are pure and undefiled, and so their religion is pure and undefiled. And it doesn't have anything to do with bulls and goats. It has to do with everyday stuff. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to God's glory. Even Epaphroditus, when he is sending aid to the apostle Paul in prison in Rome, Paul can say that what he did was a fragrant offering to God. All he did is travel with goods, worship language used of everyday things here, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. This is pure and undefiled religion before God. You see what a radical statement that is in the grand scheme of things that a Jewish guy in the mid-40s AD would take Old Covenant sacrificial language and apply it simply to the visitation of widows and orphans and their affliction. And yet... The visiting and the care for widows and orphans is not new. That itself is in the Old Testament. In fact, from early on, one of God's assignments to his people was to care for the orphan and the widow along with Other famously needy kinds of people. In Deuteronomy especially, there might be a dozen times or so where God reminds his people of their need to care for and to share food with, even to eat with and to welcome and receive. Here's the quote, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. About a dozen times those three people show up in God's commands to his people. They were to care for people like this because God cared for people like this. And so his people were to be extensions of his heart. He cares for the needy. In fact, he loves them. Just listen. Deuteronomy 10, he he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And so you love the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Or Psalm 68, verse 5, God is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. Or Hosea 14, in you, it says to God, the orphan finds mercy. Widows and orphans were simply shorthand for the most helpless and troubled in a society. In our culture today, many of us have life insurance. I've joked with my wife before that uh, she's financially better off me dead than alive. That's just a fact. Thank God for life insurance. Even apart from life insurance, women today can work in ways that they simply couldn't 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. I'm sure, I, I know it's difficult for a single mom to get by today. I'm not trying to minimize that, but it is different today than it was back then. Today, a widow may be quite all right financially for the rest of her life or in trouble. An orphan today may be quickly taken in by an aunt and an uncle and adopted or may be abandoned by all those who know them. Does this mean then that verse 27 here has no relevance for today because we don't have widows like they had back then? No, absolutely not. And sometimes we do have widows just like they had back then, women who are abandoned or or have need. But just like they needed to apply James' teaching in their own situation and context when it was first read, so we need to do the same as well. We need to think through our context and how this applies. James wasn't just writing to encourage this church or these churches to care simply for widows and simply for orphans. And really, there's no concern for the sick or no concern for the poor. No, just think of who Jesus healed he healed He healed those who were sick. He fed the poor. Those who were, in those days, paralyzed or, or blind with lifelong disease were, were outcasts. They were the most desperate of, of any. Among them would have been widows as well. Orphans too. So how do we apply all this? I... I confess that this is difficult stuff to apply and I think that not all of us will apply verse 27 the same way because the needs are great and none of us can do everything and none of us are called to do everything that others are doing as they try to live out James 1.27 but that can't be that ambiguity can't be reason for us to quietly roll past it we must apply it we must use it as a test so i think james 127 has implications for the unborn they're not yet orphans but when abortion happens that's what essentially you have a cut off from mother and father and even from life i think james 127 has implications for international and national adoptions and for foster care that some of you are doing, and some will choose to apply James one twenty seven in those ways to adopt to do foster care, and some will choose to apply James one twenty seven by helping those who adopt and helping those who do foster care, or perhaps you'll serve the unborn and their at risk mothers by serving at CareNet locally. I think James one twenty seven has implications for the homeless. Oh, I know there are some who are homeless because they want to be. I know there are some homeless who want a handout so they can go buy more drugs. But is that all we see when we see the homeless? Is that all? When is the last time you talked with a homeless person? and asked their story, you might be surprised by some of the stories you hear in the circumstances that led to where they are. I don't think our suburbanite cynicism honors God or reflects his heart. Did you know that New Mexico ranks last in child hunger among the 50 states, as in worst? that one-third of New Mexican kids will go hungry this year. I don't know what you're supposed to do to care for the poor in our city. You could serve at Love, Inc., a ministry we partner with. You could serve at Albuquerque Rescue Mission. Or you could simply start with our yearly initiative, which we call Serve the City. There'll be a video for that toward the end of our service. Dare I mention the Syrian refugee crisis here? Yes, I do dare. Is it enormously complicated? Yes. Do I have a foolproof plan for immigration that balances everything that's good? I do not. But I also know my heart and know that it's easy for me to note the complexity of that situation the seemingly unsolvable nature of that situation, and then forget about it. Forget about it. I've seen some articles on good websites that I probably should read and not read them because I don't know what to do about that. God help me. One of our members just got back from Syria helping a ministry that serves uh, and ministers to the refugees there. I don't know if I'll ever go over like he did, but I know I-, I will want to hear from him about what he learned and what he saw and what it was like. It will not do for us to say that the whole lot of them are terrorists or something when half of them are children. It is a terrible thing for us to think that our safety is the only thing in consideration it is a thing in consideration it is not the only thing and if we're thinking like Jesus I find it hard to believe that it would be even the most important thing I don't know what to do I know one thing we can do and should do is pray we need to pray and we need to be mindful of what might come our way in the future Someday in our country, a proper application of James 1.27 might be visiting those who are in prison. Or a fund here at the church where we use that money to bail out the latest one of us who is thrown into jail or paying a large fine or whose business was overtaken by the government because they would not go along with the status quo. Well, all that only scratches the surface of applying James 1, 27 and the care for the needy. I leave it to your community groups and your family discussions to see what more you can do. What more you can do to reflect the heart of God in this hurting and broken world. He's the father to the fatherless. Did you notice twice in the passage we read He's called Father. We've been born into His family. We're in a new kingdom. It's a a new world. We need to do what our Father does. He loves the sojourner. Do you? Do you? (laughs) If we've been born of Him... And if we're being shaped by his word, it should show up in specific ways in our care for the needy and broken in this world. And so we should visit them, we should care for them, we should adopt them, we should love them, we should take them in if we can. We should feed them, we should love them, we should tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. That is hard work. That is difficult. It is dirty work, you might say. It's complicated work. There are uncertainties. There are risks. It is all untold how it's going to go and what it's going to be like. And it's all just about the most godlike thing that we can do in this world. To care for those who are in need as those who've been cared for because of our great spiritual need. James doesn't stop there, even if we wish he would. Thirdly, he asks us about consecration of life. Consecration of life. Verse 27. Here's true and pure religion. To keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, I use the word consecration. That's a word we don't use much. But I think it's the right word here. What James is saying, not just because it's a C word, though that had some bearing, I'll tell you, but uh, it's a good word for what James is talking about here because to consecrate something is to make it holy or literally to make it separate. And it's separate in a twofold way it's separated from sin or the world, and it's separated to God. That's consecration, and that's what we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to pursue. We're to keep ourselves unstained and without sin. And even more, were, we're to commit ourselves to God, to be for him and to follow him. But keeping ourselves unstained from the world is not the same thing as shutting ourselves out from the world. It's not merely avoidance that James is talking about here. I know it might sound like that. It might sound like this is um, the Amish's banner verse. Keep oneself unstained from the world. But the Bible doesn't teach that on the whole. Not what the Amish say about it. The classic text about all this is Jesus' prayer in John 17. He said, Father, I do not ask that you take them, his followers, out of the world, but that you keep them within the world from the evil one, protect them. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's how we are made holy, his word, not by getting ourselves out of the world as if we could ever The saying goes, we're to be in the world, but not of it. Or we are in the world, but aren't to be of it. Not of the world means not of its systems, its values. It it doesn't mean that we, we don't do politics or... Uh, we, we don't do sports, we don't do things with, with others who are not Christians. No, we, can, we have a lot in common with unbelievers and we can do a lot with them in a very similar way. We can enjoy fine art and fine cooking and good music and good reading or photography and on and on the list would go. But we Christians must keep being shaped by God and his truth and not be conformed to the world around us. And we're shaped, again, by the word. We're shaped by being consecrated as we get closer to him. A hymn our church used to sing when I was a kid. It went, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Isn't Daniel such a helpful example here of one in the world, in Babylon actually, but not of Babylon? He could eat the king's diet, wear the king's prescribed clothes, but when prayer was outlawed, he bowed and he prayed. When Nebuchadnezzar demanded that his subjects bow before his golden image, Daniel's three friends there would not bow. And would not bend even though the fiery furnace threatened them. And in the end, God used that courage and strength and testimony to lead to an amazing response from the Babylonian king. He came around somewhat. We don't know where he is at the end of the day, but we see a great response from Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. And I think again in chapter 6 or 7. So it is with us. We don't know how it's going to go out there. It could be lion's den. It could be kings repenting. We don't know how it will go, but we know what we need to do. We need to be salt and light, as Jesus taught us. Again, what another perfect word picture for us. Salt and light. If salt isn't touching the meat, but keeping its safe distance, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, it doesn't matter that it's touching the meat. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. Light is supposed to light things up. So it shouldn't be hidden away. It shouldn't be put under a basket. It should be visible. But if it starts to go dim, it may not be much light. The light is supposed to penetrate the darkness not become darkness it's got to stay light or else it's no good it's no light here's what peter charged the church i'll read three passages from first peter to close things this morning peter charged the church like this in chapter three of his first letter who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you'll be blessed So have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And what is the hope that is in us if we're Christians, if we have true religion? Well, he said it a few verses later like this. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's what we believe. That's what we cling to. And his suffering wasn't just a payment for our sin. It was also an example. The cross was not the first and most important thing that it is, but it was secondarily an example for us. So Peter wrote, Christ has suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, he bridled his tongue perfectly. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Is he your righteousness and is he your guide? Are you walking in his steps because you have met him at his cross? Are you born of his word and being shaped by his word? Well, you could ask yourself this. Is your tongue being bridled these days? Is your heart growing in compassion of late And is your life being shaped by God in righteousness through his word? And if you say, kind of, then there's hope, okay? There's hope. There is hope. I think we're all kind of. It's not perfect. It's a hard, rigid test that James gives to us. He grades on a curve, if we can put it that way. There is such a thing as true and pure religion before God. And there is such a thing as those who are deceived and the religion is worthless. And if you don't know whether you have true religion, then maybe for the first time, maybe for the 100th time or 1,000th time, come to him, come to him, come ye sinners poor and needy. Weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your welcome. It is to sinners, it is to those who know they're poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. We believe that you are ready to save you're full of pity, love, and power. We want to believe this. We want it to be true. We want to arise and go to you afresh today and know that you embrace us in your arms. We also pray as we come to you that we would be mindful of those who still need to come to you. And we, Lord, would call on them to come to go to you, to be saved, and to find mercy. In the meantime, Lord, may we show your love to them. May you use us to reflect your heart in this world and thereby spread your glory broader and deeper. Do it for your name's sake. Do it now and for all eternity. Amen.